it's been five years and we should really kill this uh, idea that uh, your emissions, no matter how small, don't matter. It's really China's emissions that matter. Because what the Paris Climate Agreement tells you is that to be able to have stable temperature, which is what we want from trying to tackle climate change, the only way to do it is to have net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Welcome to Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss energy and climate issues with leading experts from around the world. If you'd like to support Energy Talks, please visit our website at energy.media, that's E-N-E-R-G-I dot media, and click on support. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Akshat Rathi, an energy and climate reporter for Bloomberg, about China's recent announcement that it will achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. So welcome to Energy Talks, Akshat. It's good to be here. Look, before we get into China's announcement last week, let's talk about your background a little bit, because it's not very often that I interview journalists who have a PhD in organic chemistry from Oxford University, a BTech in chemical engineering from the Institute of Chemical Technology in Mumbai, who's worked at The Economist, the Royal Society of Chemistry, and whose writing has been published in The Guardian, Nature, and many other publications. Please, please give us a little bit of your background and story and your journey and how you became, went from science to journalism. Um, I became uh, an engineer, but while studying engineering, writing was a hobby I pursued. So in college in India, in Mumbai, um, I started a magazine and uh, it, was a, it was about gossip and things happening in the college. Uh, but it became a thing that I wanted to continue to do because it was a lot of fun. I, I got to work with the kinds of people I wouldn't usually interact with. And when I was pursuing my PhD, um, that hobby continued. Oxford has... Um, a number of student newspapers uh, that published really good um, journalism, um, and uh, many of them actually go on to become journalists. And it has science magazines and it has uh, literature magazines. And so I continued to do that as a as a side, um, you know, in the evening type of um, uh, operation. And then when at about middle of my PhD, when I realized I didn't want to stay in academia. Um, because if I wanted to do the kind of science I wanted, I, ha I was uh, hoping I could do, I would have to spend about 10 years um, just being a postdoc, um, slaving away in a lab before there was any chance I could run an, uh, a lab of my own. And so to me, um, writing felt like a, a way in which I could uh, find a shortcut to still be in the world of ideas uh, and still be able to pursue um, um, interesting science uh, without having to grind it out in the lab. Um, and I was fortunate to get my first um, journalism gig uh, at uh, The Economist right after my PhD. Um, and I joined as an intern, and that was where I got my crash course in journalism. Well, most journalists are probably like me. They either graduate from a journalism course or they've got an arts background and, and stumble into journalism, which is what happened to me. And then you kind of learn your, your beat on the job. Do you find that having the kind of training that you did uh, gives you a, an advantage in covering technically or scientifically complex stories? Absolutely. I think if anything, there are fewer science students in journalism than there should be. Um, one of the reasons I got into journalism was that because I could see there were stories that I could have 
told better or uh, explained better than many of the journalists could at the time anyway. And that felt like an opportunity. Um, you know, so much of our life is shaped by science, especially now with the pandemic. Uh, I mean, pretty much every minute of our life outside our own home is governed by, by rules that scientists have uh, come up with for our own safety. So that level of um, scientific um, knowledge and, and conversation needed to happen. And, and I'm just lucky I get to do it. And it, I'm not the only one now. There are a number of PhD, uh, you know, science PhDs I know who are journalists today. And I think it's, um, you know, more people should join it. This will be the last question and then we'll get into talking about China's announcement. How disturbed are you by the anti-science trend that we're seeing, particularly in the United States? Canada is not immune to it. Not sure how that plays out in Europe, but how, what do you think of that? It's troubling, but I would also say, if you look at it from a, a, a much longer period of time, uh, scientists have never been as trusted as they are today. So yes, in pockets, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, maybe in, in certain parts of the U.S., that, that trust has fallen. But the global trend has been one of increased trust, increased trust in science. Um, and, uh, and where the trust is falling, we should do all we can to overcome it because there can be some serious consequences. Uh, one episode that I can uh, share is from here in the U.K. where um, there was a series of papers, uh, one paper published, and then a series of articles by uh, right-wing media picking up on the MMR vaccine, uh, which is the measles, um, uh, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and how uh, this particular scientist purported that it might cause uh, autism. There is no fact in uh, that uh, science paper, but because it was published in a science journal, um, it took a whole you know, decade to ensure that that was debunked and that people had the same level of trust in the MMR vaccine or generally vaccines um, that they do now here in Europe. Um, I mean, that story still comes up in right-wing press and uh, still is spreading as we are talking about a coronavirus vaccine. So it's very hard to kill these zombies, uh, but you know, the more trained people we have from this profession into journalism, the better it will be. Well, let's talk about China. Maybe you could give us a brief overview of what exactly was announced. So we only got one sentence from uh, President Xi Jinping uh, about this goal. And it said, China is on target to peak its CO2 emissions by 2030 and reach carbon neutrality by 2060. Um, that's about it. Uh, since then, my colleagues have been able to eke out some more detail from researchers, uh, government-linked researchers in China, about what this goal might be. And what we can say now is that the goal is tied to CO2 emissions, which is you know 75% of the climate problem, uh, so vast majority of it, but not all greenhouse gases, so not methane, not nitrous oxide, etc. And uh, we know that uh, even though 2030 is the peak that China is aiming for, and that is something that it had already committed to in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, there is a good likelihood that China will uh, reach its peak of emissions sooner. So maybe between 2025 and 2030, and maybe even on the side of 2025. 
And that will give China about 30, 35 years to go from its peak, which would be, you know, 11 gigatons, the most any country is putting out, um, all the way to zero on CO2 at least. What exactly is carbon neutrality? There's a lot of terms that are thrown around, like net zero emissions by 2050, that sort of thing. But what is carbon neutrality? When I spoke to scientists about this, uh, they were categorical in their sort of disdain for the word neutrality because people can take and make it mean what they want it to mean. Um, there are more precise terms that they prefer. And uh, the precise term is net zero. And then you describe the type of emissions. So net zero greenhouse gas emissions or net zero carbon dioxide emissions. And the net part is almost no large entity is going to be able to reach zero. You'll get as close to zero as possible, and then you'll offset it with some form of negative emissions, maybe natural negative emissions or technologically uh, used uh, carbon capture systems. Um, and so that's their preferred term uh, if we are to use it. Of course, journalists like to be able to use synonyms because they don't want to bore the reader uh, who, you know, they're not writing science papers here. And so uh, what I came away with uh, from the scientists was to um, sort of create this style system where whenever you're talking about uh, an emissions goal, be precise in the first mention. And then you can use other synonyms, uh, but at least you've got your point across. Now, why is carbon neutrality for uh, by 2060 for China important? And I, I'll give you a little background here in Canada. Uh, oil and gas boosters, many of them in Alberta, are fond of saying Canada is only 1.6% of global emissions. China is so much more as 28%, I think, is, is the percentage. Why should we penalize our economy when China is doing so little to bring down its emissions? So does this, is it important, in, at least in part, because it shows the rest of the world that China is serious about this and sends a message to countries like Canada? There, there are a number of reasons. And I think the first one should be it's been five years and we should really kill this uh, idea that uh, your emissions, no matter how small, don't matter. It's really China's emissions that matter. Because what the Paris Climate Agreement tells you is that to be able to have stable temperature, which is what we want from trying to tackle climate change, the only way to do it is to have net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Um, or you have net zero CO2 emissions, and then you have a number of uh, uh, negative emissions that manage the, the other greenhouse gases that you can't cut. Uh, but essentially, without stabilizing emissions, uh, we are not going to be able to uh, stabilize temperature. And that means every actor in the system needs to get to this net zero. Whether you're contributing 28% as China is, or 1.6% as, as Canada is, or 0.01% as Bangladesh is, everybody has to be able to align to this target. And that is sort of a clarifying message we shouldn't uh, miss. China's goal is huge because not just uh, the fact that China will cut its emissions, and of course, as I said, China is uh, at you know, 11 gigatons or 28%, um, and will bring that to net zero, at least on CO2. In the process of doing that, 
China will accelerate the clean energy transition in a way that few countries can do because of its size and scale. So it's already the largest manufacturer of solar. It's already one of the largest manufacturers of wind turbines, already the largest manufacturer of batteries, already the biggest seller of electric cars. What future technologies do we need? We need cheap nuclear. We need um, you know, clean cement and steel. We need clean hydrogen. All of those things are something that China is currently working on. And to be able to get to this carbon neutrality goal, it will have to accelerate that path and that will benefit the rest of the world. There was a point I think that you made in your column, which uh, caught my eye. And that is there's a growing trend amongst the larger economies to commit to net zero emissions. And China joining that group uh, really sends a message. And I guess I mentioned this in the last question, but it, it, there's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, we seem to be getting past a, a threshold. A, and, and China seems to be the one that's going to push us over that threshold from a policy and public perception point of view. Yeah, I mean, this is also perhaps a response to the very first question you asked about, you know, shouldn't China cut emissions? Well, now it is telling you it is going to cut emissions. So that's one. There's also the market signal. Um, you're right. I mean, if you look at the top five economies, and that's, uh, you know, currently the US, then China, uh, or the US, then EU, then China, uh, Japan, and then California, if you pull California out of the US. Apart from the US, all the other four uh, economies have net zero emissions goals. And that's because the Paris Climate Agreement gives you this framework and economies see that uh, adopting this goal is to their benefit because they're not just going to cut emissions and avoid some of the impacts, but develop these technologies which will make them money and make their people richer. How does China intend to achieve carbon neutrality? And I think there's a perception, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, that, that China continues to build <clears throat> coal-fired power plants and continues to finance coal-fired power plants outside of China. And it's hard to reconcile its uh, commitment to carbon neutrality and its commitment to coal. And that is right. I think uh, the world needs to push China a lot more on that aspect. Um, it hasn't yet committed to, uh, as, as we talked about, lowering emissions faster. So it still sticks to its 2030 target that it had set back in 2015 uh, as the peak of its emissions. And it hasn't announced uh, that it's going to start shrinking its coal pipeline, coal power pipeline, uh, both nationally and internationally. And those are things that uh, only through um, dialogue and pressure from other countries will China be, uh, will, will China push itself on. But the pathway is clear. To be able to get to carbon neutrality, China has said, and this is from the government researchers that my colleagues spoke to, the uh, reduction in oil, coal, and natural gas uh, in, uh, consumption is going to be drastic. We're looking at uh, upwards of 75% reduction in, um, in natural gas consumption, 95% reduction in coal consumption, you know, similarly high percentage reduction in oil consumption. Um, and without that, uh, you know, as much as you like and you can use carbon capture to cut emissions, you have to first reduce your fossil fuel consumption. Only then can you rely on some carbon capture technology. 
what are the uh, what are the obstacles that China is going to face? And one of the ones you pointed out, I think, in your column that again caught my eye, was the fact that whatever Beijing thinks, the smaller governments, the the junior governments in China, aren't always on the same page. Yeah, and we should you know we think of China as this monolithic um, country that is run top down by uh, a small group of people in Beijing, and that's not the case. Um, it's, you know, it's not a healthy, thriving democracy by any means, uh, but it is a federal structure where local governments have quite a lot of power. Many of these local governments rely heavily on um, income that they make either from coal uh, mining or from coal power plants or from uh, cement or steel. You know, they'll have their pet industries that they've been backing for so long, and it's going to take real pressure and incentives to bring those um, um, regions along. And of course, in this process, China will also have to develop new technologies to be able to allow these regions to still have an economy um, that is flourishing and helping their people while cutting emissions. Can China afford this? I, I think in your column you mentioned a figure, it is either $150 billion a year or maybe it was $250 billion a year. But that's an enormous amount of capital that needs to be invested to achieve this target, can they afford it? $180 billion, this was an estimate made by a, a think tank. Um, we don't know the actual figure. Um, and of course, this is sort of an average, it's 180 uh, every year until 2050 to reach a certain proportion, 85% proportion of renewables in the mix out of 100%. So it's not carbon neutrality. Um, we don't know the figures, but what we do know is those figures are not outrageous. China's already been spending upwards of $100 billion uh, on renewables anyway. So this is not a fact, this is not about scaling it 10 times, this might be about two times or maybe three times or four times, uh, which, which are not crazy numbers. And what China sees and what most countries will start to see is that acting and paying up right now will bring dividends later. Otherwise, you're going to have to spend that money trying to deal with the impacts of climate change, and those sums will be much larger. The, uh, uh, China has been a, a leader in a lot of the technologies, the clean energy uh, technologies. And is there a perception within China that there's a significant benefit to being a first mover in batteries, in electric vehicles, in wind turbines, in solar panels? And I bring this up because in Canada, there, uh, in many quarters, uh, particularly Alberta, uh, there isn't that recognition. And there's a sense of that we should hang back, we should let others take the risk, we should be followers. And that seems to me to be a very dangerous kind of strategy. Because if you're not first mover, second mover, you're not establishing yourself in some of these market niches now, getting into them five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, when people are already, you know, we're at the majority adopter stage in, you know, solar panels, for instance. So that, that seems to me to be a dangerous strategy. What's your take on that? It's true, but um, in the case of China, for example, with solar, China wasn't the first mover. You know, the solar panel was invented in the US, uh, was then uh, taken up by the Germans and Japanese for uh, both, you know, energy independence or energy security purposes, but also climate purposes. It was only uh, in sort of the late 2010 
that China became the solar giant that we know of today. And in getting there, because it had to come into it sort of as a, not a last mover, but you know, second, third, fourth mover, it had to put in a lot of capital from the state to make it happen. So it heavily subsidized those industries to get them off the ground. But it learned from that process that it can do it. And that is why China then took on the risk to go um, you know, almost first mover on electric cars and batteries. Uh, you know, it, again, if we go into the history of China, they have always felt, at least the, the government, um, the, the party, the Communist Party has felt a little bit um, embarrassed by the fact that their cars are, you know, domestically built in, internal combustion engine cars are subpar to what is available in the West. And they've had to partner with all the Western companies, be it Audi or Volkswagen or General Motors, to really bring technology uh, into internal combustion engines. But they saw an opportunity that with electric cars, they could turn that um, phenomena around and become the leader of that technology. And they've, you know, they've partly succeeded. Of course, we have Tesla here in the US that uh, continues to be the technology leader. And yet the deployment leader is still very much China. Akshay, thank you very much for this. This has been a real insight into a, a topic that I don't personally know much about, and I know many of my listeners don't either. So we'll, uh, we'll look forward to having you on uh, future episodes, and uh, good luck with your journalism. Thank you.